It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. Now, we wanted to do an extra show this week as a story has just come out about the work that scientists at the oil giant Exxon did in the 1970s all around the modelling of the impact of climate change. Now, this week's news study is building on an investigation from 2015 where journalists at Inside Climate News revealed that Exxon scientists had been warning their bosses about potentially catastrophic global warming since at least 1977. So this is a massive story. It goes back decades, it involves billions of dollars, and it's about the culpability for the climate disaster that's unfolding all around us. So to talk about this, I'm joined by our environment reporter, Madeleine Cuff, and by climate scientist, Peter Stott. Peter is the author of Hot Air, the inside story of the battle against climate change denial, and he's a specialist in climate attribution at the UK Met Office. Hello both and welcome. Thanks for coming. Hello. Hi. Maddie, maybe you can start us off. Like maybe remind us of the background of this and tell us what's new about this paper that's just come out. Yeah, sure. So as you said, Rowan, we already know from interviews with Exxon employees, from leaked documents, internal memos, archive materials and published research. So a whole bunch of different sources that Exxon scientists at the time, back in the 1970s and 80s, were really at the cutting edge of early climate science. So they were pioneering research and really kind of understood the emerging threats that rising carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere might pose. But until now, no one had really scrutinized the kind of technical scientific predictions that Exxon scientists were making. So in other words, were their models right? Mm. And that's where this new paper comes in. So um, a guy called Jeffrey Supran at Harvard University and his colleagues, they took it upon themselves to assess the accuracy of Exxon's scientific predictions against both contemporary models, so what other scientists were saying at the time, and subsequent real-world changes in temperature. So in other words where they prove right in the long run. And they found that Exxon's results were in line with scientific thinking at the time. And perhaps even more importantly, they were accurate in predicting subsequent rates of global warming. So in other words, they were right about what would happen. Right. One of my favorite stories is that they even spent a million dollars, which was obviously a huge amount of money now, but was even more money back then, kitting out this super tanker with monitoring equipment essentially so they could send it off into the ocean and measure how quickly the oceans were taking up carbon dioxide which was a really crucial question that would Mm. kind of determine how quickly climate impacts would start to escalate so that really gives you a sense of kind of 
how pioneering they were being in the research they were doing at the time. But some of that was published, but a lot of it was held internally. I mean, Peter, did you, you must personally know some of the scientists who, who were working there, but what about the science that was going on? Did you ever see any of it at the time? No, no, I, or at least only saw a small amount of it because the science that you see is the science that's published. And these technical reports, you know, may be buried and not, and not really be seen. And so, yes, there were Exxon scientists working for Exxon that, that were part of the scientific community. But if that material is not put out into the world, then it's not being assessed. So, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change relies rightly, in my view, on the the peer-reviewed scientific literature, because that's had the, the full assessment. But it can only look at that material. So it was those early IPCC reports were therefore missing these technical reports written by Exxon scientists that weren't in the published literature. Maddie, what's the, been the response from Exxon about this new paper? Yeah, I think it's important to, to say that Exxon denies that it's ever sought to mislead the public on the issue of climate science. And it mm-hmm. says it's proud of the work it did to contribute towards research on, on global warming. And in response to the, to the paper specifically, it said that this issue that Exxon knew about climate change has come up several times in recent years. And in each case, this is, I'm quoting from Exxon now, our answer is the same. Those who suggest we knew are wrong. Some have sought to misrepresent facts and ExxonMobil's position on climate science and its support for effective policy solutions by recasting well-intended internal policy debates as an attempted company disinformation campaign. So they're not happy. (laughs) Well, no, but I mean, it just feels like gaslighting, doesn't it? When they say... Those who say we knew are wrong. I, I just can't understand that response because the documents like there in black and white show that they did know, didn't they? I think we can say confidently that they knew at least as much, if not more, as the as the wider scientific community did at the time. So, I mean, particularly in the 1970s, the science might have not been completely settled, but it was becoming increasingly compelling. And certainly by the mid-80s, even Exxon was saying that there was a clear scientific consensus that there were increasing risks from rising atmospheric CO2 levels. So, you know, they certainly knew what there was to know at the time. And Peter, I mean, you've detailed a lot of this in your book about your interactions with um, big oil and various pressure groups that are trying to sow disinformation about climate science. Is this all giving you horrible flashbacks? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it resonates with, with what I wrote about in my book. I mean, actually, my book picks up the story largely from when I came into climate science, which is in 1996, and follows the story on from there. And quite a lot of the material in this new work about Exxon is actually before that. So mm. I think what taken together, what this is showing is this, is this long view picture of, you know, the science as it's emerging, not being acted on, and part of the story of why it's not being acted on is the obfuscation or the, the hiding or the outright denial by various vested interests who don't want action in various ways. And that's, that's done a lot of damage, you know, because as the science has got ever more certain, the imperative for action has got ever stronger. But also in terms of if you're thinking about the risks of climate change, they were actually known about way back, as we've been discussing, way back mm. into the 70s and the 80s. You know, already there was enough information to start to make these transitions that we're now having to make with with massive speed. Maddie, maybe you could give us some examples of some of the disinformation that Exxon used. I mean, 
Peter just mentioned, you know, you started your book takes up the story in 1996. And there's one thing that stuck in my head from um, 1997, just ahead of the Kyoto climate talks, where Mobile used an advertorial to advise people that we don't rush to a decision at Kyoto and quote, we still don't know what role man-made greenhouse gases might play in warming the planet, end quote. I mean, that was in 1997. Yeah, so what's what's really interesting is after this kind of pioneering research in the 70s and 80s, there were plenty of statements from, from Exxon executives in the 90s and 2000s, which kind of played up any sense of doubt or confusion there was about climate science. So there's plenty of examples of statements from executives who warned that the science on global warming just wasn't robust enough to justify taking really radical action to cut emissions, which campaigners would point out would have invariably involved reducing fossil fuel consumption and therefore hit Exxon's business model. Mm. So for example, in 2000, the then CEO of Exxon, Lee Raymond, wrote that we do not have a sufficient scientific understanding of climate change to make reasonable predictions and or justify drastic measures. A year later, in 2001, a press release from the company said there is no consensus about long-term climate trends and what causes them. During the 1970s, people were concerned about global cooling. So you've got to remember, this is after Exxon scientists have issued internal advice to people in the company, warning that there is a clear consensus among scientists (laughs) that the climate threat was real and serious. So this kind of happens after all of that internal warning from their scientists. Yeah. um, And actually, that chimes with um, something that Michael Mann, I spoke to him earlier. Michael's a climate scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's author of a book called The New Climate War, which shows how fossil fuel companies have, have waged this campaign to deflect blame and responsibility and to delay action on climate change. And Mike said, uh, he gave me something to read out because he can't join our call, but he said, it's ironic that ExxonMobil spent decades attacking climate scientists and their projections, while secretly their own scientists had confirmed them. It puts a whole other layer of culpability and legal liability behind their disinformation campaign. It is going to have big legal implications, isn't it, Maddie? It might well do. There are a number of lawsuits underway against not just ExxonMobil, but other big oil companies as well in the in the states, where essentially they are being taken to court for the for the assumption that they knew about climate change, they knew what was going to happen, and they deliberately misled the public about the threat that it posed. So I think we're really going to see in the next few years how these climate litigations shake out and they could have some some really severe consequences for the companies involved. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Peter, what's been your experience of what scientists are doing now at big oil companies? As I document in my book, there's, there's been over many years, there's been a, this very frustrating obfuscation and delay in the science. And my perception at any rate is that for a large part, the science is now accepted because it can't not be in mm. effect, because the evidence is so compelling and particularly what's so convincing both scientifically and, and in fact to the general public is, is the increasing frequency and intensity of heat waves and floods and droughts and more intense hurricanes around the world. And the knock-on effects on people's lives and the insurance companies having to deal with this it is just so manifestly undeniable now that, you know, even powerful oil companies can't obfuscate that. Now the issue is, is about the urgency of, of the challenge, which is, again, scientifically super clear. But there is really dangerous, in my view, lobbying against urgency. And actually, it draws back. And I'm thinking of groups like the Global Warming Policy Foundation, for example, mm. who will peddle this line that, well, yes, global warming is happening, but it's nothing very much to worry about because there isn't an urgency of tackling it. And that is a very dangerous argument because we know well that if we are going to avoid catastrophic climate change, the urgency of reducing emissions and dealing with this massive global problem is, is very, very real. And every year of delay that goes by, the more difficult that transition becomes. And I think that's, that's really where the battle lines now are. And I think we've, we've got to be careful not to be beguiled by you know, people with vested interests, which may be from the oil companies saying, well, okay, we accept there's a problem, but actually we don't need to worry too much or maybe mm. technology will come along in 10 years time and it will be fine. Because that beguiling argument is actually now just as dangerous, I think, as the arguments were 30 years ago that there isn't a problem at all. So maybe one of the important things that this paper will do, even though it's kind of repeating or building on the story that came out in 2015, one of the important things will be to remind people don't be beguiled by what you're hearing from people with vested interests. Yes, exactly. And, you know, in some ways, the message of science is actually really rather, rather straightforward, which is that we've, we've got to figure out a way quickly of getting ourselves to, to net zero emissions so that we are collectively as a species emitting, you know, no more CO2 into the atmosphere than we're able to draw down from the atmosphere. I just hope that people will, will engage with that and not be distracted by debates about the remaining uncertainties in the science, which, which do nothing to, to obfuscate that basic central point. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, it was journalists who started this particular story off in 2015. But now we're seeing, that, you know, this peer-reviewed journal with science are publishing this big, big paper on Exxon's science. So it's, it's, it's weird that it's, it started with journalists and now scientists have done it. And, and Peter, it made me think of, of you because you've kind of gone in the other direction, haven't you, from being a pure climate scientist, albeit one who was battling climate denial, to writing about it in your book. Yeah, and I, there were two reasons I wrote the book. I think one was, was because I, it, it eventually dawned on me that I'd been involved in a lot of really interesting and at times distressing, but nevertheless fascinating encounters where my science and my science and my colleagues had butted up against these forces of denial and, and often by people with, with some scientific skills, but very good oratorical and persuasive skills that we had to learn how to, to deal with that in different contexts, like in courts of law and um, 
conferences and so on. But I think the other reason was, a, was, was more of an activist reason that I, I just felt that I wanted another forum for getting that message across about the basic science, but also about why people may not have been hearing about that science or maybe why people have got confused about it and tried to set that out and set that story out of why there has been this delay and obfuscation and, and sort of how it has unrolled over the years. It's just fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I had a, a similar conversation with Jeffrey Superin, the author of this new paper, who said that he's happy to be seen as both a kind of scientist and an activist and that he doesn't see those two roles being hold in, held in contention with one another, which I think kind of just shows how much the conversation has moved on around climate science and how many scientists now kind of see their role as as advancing action on climate change, not just kind of setting out the pure science of, of why and how it's happening. Yes, exactly. And I think, I think part of this is, is a realisation over the years, and I think we've, you know, I and many others have, have long since realised this now, that, that simply writing our science in the, in the scientific literature and simply stating it may not be enough. And part of that is because of how vested interests, you know, have tried to obscure the message. We've, we've realised that we have to be more forthright and be as clear as we possibly can about drawing out the implications of our science. And, and I think that's been um, an important learning experience for us as, as scientists over the years to realise that. While we're here, I, we've just had the news this week that the head, of, the head of one of the world's biggest oil companies is going to be the president of COP28, the climate summit, later this year. So that's Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabbar, who's the, he's CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He's going to be the person in charge of persuading the world's nations to cut their use of fossil fuels. What do you make of that, Peter? It's quite a thought, isn't it? I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's, it's quite a thought. And, and I guess I'm just, I'm just coming to terms with it myself, to mm. some extent, to be really honest with you. Um, you know, this is how vested interests are playing out. You could argue, perhaps, that, you know, we're not going to solve this problem without the Middle East being involved. And yeah without countries like, like the United Arab Emirates getting fully engaged. So it's, I think there's an element here, this has happened, it's an agreement of the, these annual conferences move around the world, there's a decision that's been made to hold in that part of the world. So I think we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. But it is, it is nevertheless concerning to an extent that, that there are these vested interests so obviously at play. But I guess it's up to the rest of the world to hold the president of COP to account. And, and I think we'll also have to see how all the other players in, in the world, all the other world governments actually do that, because I think it's on their responsibility to make sure that he upholds his own responsibility as COP president, which is not to be beholden to those vested interests, but to actually be, be the leader gathering people together on this issue. That's all for this bonus episode. Thanks for listening and do subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our guests, Madeline Cuff and Peter Stott, and I definitely recommend Peter's book, Hot Air. We're back next week, and we'll see you then. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. 
You will be timed. <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.